Good morning and welcome to Recipe for Success. I am so excited to have uh, my very special guest today, Deb Alt, um, affectionately known in our industry as Nurse Deb. I think um, of all the guests I've had on, at least in our industry, she's probably the most famous. So I feel I feel a little <laughs> honored to have her on here today. For anyone um, joining us for the very first time, Recipe for Success came about because um, I love to cook. And as I was cooking one day in the kitchen, I was thinking about how everything had one very critical key to the success of the recipe. It was either a key ingredient or a key technique. And really the same thing is true in business or in life. And so I took that thought and I brought it to this podcast. And my focus here has been on really great women doing wonderful things in their business or personal life and improving life for others in the process. So there is no better example of that than Nurse Deb. So I'm gonna turn it over to her for a moment to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her background and why she's here today. Excellent, well, thank you, Nancy. I'm honored to be here. Um, so I hope that everyone gets something beneficial out of today's event. As Nancy said, my name's Nurse Deb. I'm a registered nurse. I'm the president and founder of Alt International Medical Management. We're on 19, going on 20 years now of independent carve-out concierge, patient advocacy-based medical management. I like to say that we are one of the original creators of consumer-driven, behaviorally-driven healthcare patient navigation, right? All of those things are really critical. The idea being that you put a team of nurses and doctors alongside a patient telephonically to handhold them through the two most cumbersome ecosystems in the universe. That would be the healthcare delivery system. What care am I going to get? When am I going to get it? Where am I going to go to get it? And the health plan system, oh my golly, is this going to bankrupt me and my family and my employer in the process? So coming together with those clinical and financial components, one patient at a not time to help them make the best possible decisions to be as healthy as they can, as quickly as they can. Well, that is a very good description. Um, honestly, again, I've been associated, I've been familiar with Deb for, I don't know, probably five years or more. And I, there's so much I could talk to you about. Um, I have seen her talk on many different subjects, not only patient advocacy, and she is a brilliant woman, but I'm going to try and stay focused today. So we are going to start by diving a little bit more into what exactly medical management is, because I think from the sound of it, people tend to be a little bit afraid. They think that they're going to be denied something or or it's going to prevent them from actually getting the care that they want when really the opposite is true. So I'd love for you to expand on that. Yeah, the terminology medical management's like every other term in our industry. And I always say the only thing that our industry is really good at is bastardizing terminology. <laughs> Right? <laughs> we like we put a label on something and then there's an entire spectrum of how people interpret that. Um, to me, medical management means helping individual patients to make sure that they have all of the information, all of the resources, all of the support, all of the guidance, all of the things that they need to make the best possible decision for themselves. Now, notice I didn't say we're giving that information to their doctors, right? Patients need to be involved in their healthcare decision-making process. 
I'm always astonished at the number of times that patients just kind of blindly follow what somebody said, and they're not looking at evidence-based clinical criteria. They're not looking at objective quality scores. They're not looking at their own insurance coverages, right? They want something and it's clearly an exclusion under the policy and they just go and get it. And then they're upset when the claim gets denied. So proactively coming alongside that patient, understanding that patient holistically, right? What are their socioeconomic issues? What are their religious and cultural considerations? All of those social determinants of health. So I don't think that medical management's job is to tell a patient or a doctor what to do or what not to do. I think that medical management's job is to create a wise consumer who is well-informed, who knows all of their options, because Nancy, don't get me started on doctor's practices being bought by hospitals and health systems and how physician gag orders prevent the doctors that patients are trusting to treat them from disclosing all of the options. If they know a particular procedure is best, but it can't be done at the hospital or the health system or the mothership that owns that physician's practice, that physician is prohibited by his employer from saying, well, there's this revolutionary procedure or technique, but it can't be done here. You'd have to go somewhere else. So there has to be somebody who comes alongside that patient, gets to know them intimately, understands the dynamics of the health delivery system, understands their health plan and says, hey, if you want that procedure or service, there's nothing to prevent you from getting it, but you need to know before you go and incur those charges, that's a plan exclusion. Exactly. And there are community resources that are available. Look at these options, pay for it out of pocket. But I think patients deserve to know that going in. There should never be a surprise medical bill, right? <laughs> Maybe you call 911 and that might be a surprise, but short of calling 911, patients should know and you've got to give them the resources so that they have that info. Uh, I absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, I often use myself as an example when I talk to um, employee groups because I always want them to know, like, I understand my health plan pretty darn well, <laughs> and I still have challenges. I will go to my doctor and say, well, I don't want to walk across the hall to get an MRI. Um, can I go someplace else? Can I go to a freestanding clinic? And they'll look at you and they're like, well, I suppose you could. We'll have to write you a paper order and then you'll have to go there and they'll have to send it to us. I'll make, okay, good. I'll do that. And they look at you like they're so disappointed. It's crazy. And, and oftentimes, and again, everyone knows this, but you can ask at the doctor's office, how much is that going to cost? They're like, well, I can't tell you that. Or they don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I can't tell you that. Why not? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure how much it's going to cost because I don't know how much your insurance is going to pay. Like, that's not what I asked you. What I asked was, how much is it going to cost? Right. You have well, a master charge schedule. You can tell me. Yeah. And, and the biggest challenge, Nancy, that I find, right, I'm a high D on the DISC profile, right? Determined, domineering, you know, all those things that, that high D stands for. We hang out together. Right. Yeah. But the, the challenge is when patients are making those critical decisions, it's a highly emotionally volatile time. And so 
that's one of the reasons that I think things like cost transparency alone or a benefits app alone, oh, right? Great. It's not going to solve the problem because there's so much emotion at the time. Like, you, you know, I've told the story about my mom falling and fracturing her spine and I was this close to forgetting to call in and find out what's the physician's quality score, yeah. right? I mean, the emotion of it really floods your system. I mean, just electrophysiologically, the chemical reaction that happens in your body makes logic and science and math go out the window. So unless you insert an objective, you know, no skin in the game kind of organization like ours, into helping that patient, because I get paid a flat PEPM. Right. Right. Whether the patient follows our recommendation, doesn't follow our recommendation, that has no bearing on what I get paid or how successful we are. We gave them the information. It's up to them to make the best choice for themselves. But that's so emotional. And people make healthcare decisions based on emotion and convenience, not based on science and math and logic and intellect. Yeah. That's the biggest challenge. It's almost like you're a, a Sherpa. Um, really, you know, if when those people are trying to climb, climb Mount Everest and they lose all logic because it's so emotional and they're at such altitude, they need somebody to, to guide them and say, well, here's what's going to happen if you do this and here's what's going to happen if you don't. And, you know, they're not telling them what to do, but they are giving them the options and, and providing good guidance. I did see a comment from, um, I'll pop this back on here again, from Jen Walsh. She's like, I couldn't even figure out my own prescription last week. I mean, it happens to all of us. We get we get all, you know, emotional about something that's going on and a little bit panicky. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to believe our doctor because that's well, the way we were raised. Well, it, and thank God we're able to trust our doctors, yes. right? I don't want somebody poking and prying and prodding, you know, if I can't trust them. And, and I will tell you, coming from the bedside originally as a bedside nurse, I get it, right? The pressures that they're under, they're way bigger issues, right? A doctor graduates medical school, quarter million dollars in debt. That's a major problem. Medical malpractice reform is a major problem, right? I mean, I get the pressure that they're under at the bedside. And I truly believe that those who are delivering hands-on care are doing the best they can possibly do for every patient that they treat. Problem is there are thousands of new medical journal articles published every month. It's impossible for them to run their business, be a good family member, be involved in the community, be a good employee, and stay current on all of the research, let alone adding all this cost stuff into it. Those of us who live, eat, sleep, and breathe cost of healthcare can't figure it out, right? So how do you expect a doctor whose primary purpose is taking care of sick patients to figure it out? I mean, it, there's a lot that's broken about U.S. healthcare, but I still remain convinced that there is one person who can solve that problem. And it's the patient who's getting their body cared for at that exact point in time. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that. So since we're on this topic, I think it ties in perfectly. But in our society, we tend to associate a higher price with a higher quality. I mean, if we're going to go buy a car, we know that a Mercedes is going to cost more than, you know, uh, a Honda Civic. Yeah, a Yugo. <laughs> and, and we know that there's a difference in quality. 
between those between those two vehicles. But the same parallel cannot be associated in healthcare. And I think people don't understand that. And I would love for you to give a little bit of insight into how price and quality do or don't match up in healthcare. Yeah, it's probably the most difficult concept to get mere mortal human beings to understand, especially in America. Now in other countries, not so much, right? So um, we have an international presence at AIM. So it's a different conversation when someone is not Americanized culturally, right? Other cultures understand value and cost and, and inversion of those and that kind of thing. In America, we think washing machines, televisions, cars, sneakers, if you want the best, you got to spend a lot of money. And the primary challenge with cost transparency, thank God there's finally cost transparency legislation. But the reason that that's not going to solve it alone is because the American consumer is going to look and say, my kid needs their tonsils out. There are three places I can get them. One costs $500, one costs $1,500, and one costs $5,000. I better take them to the place that costs the $5,000 because they must be the best. And because of the fee-for-service structure of healthcare in the U.S., the exact opposite is true. The higher the quality, the fewer complications, the fewer infections, the fewer readmissions, the faster you um, heal someone, the lower the number of services that you do, the lower the fees that you collect. So it's hard to get people to wrap their head around that. And so I often will use the analogy of taking your car to get the oil changed, right? And you drive into the little bay and they've got like a 50 point inspection checklist. Well, that's because their fee for service. And if they find that your wiper blades need replaced while you're in there, they can upcharge you by providing that service. People don't think of healthcare as being the same, but it really is. Fee for service means the more procedures or services or things that they do, the more they get to charge. So when you see somebody that's high priced in healthcare, I always get a little bit skeptical. Now, fortunately, we're beginning to see some of that change, right? There are a handful of expert physicians at particular procedures or services that can charge whatever they want to charge because they are the creme de la creme. They created the procedure. They created the service. They don't have to give any insurance company a discount, right? So um, we're beginning to see some of that change. And that's what I really hope will change. I hope a lot of those free market principles will take hold in healthcare and that those who are experts and do the best, they deserve to get paid more. Absolutely. Right. But that's a real conundrum to get, you know, people who spend their eight hours a day making widgets to understand, wait a minute, if you're going to the highest price place, you're probably going to the lowest quality place. The other thing that happens, and I don't think enough uh, American consumers understand it, is marketing budget does not equal quality. So just because somebody puts up billboards or buys ads in U.S. News and World Reports or does paid advertising or, you know, spends $15,000 to get named one of the top 100 best, you know, those things are not objective quality measures. And we fall for advertising as American consumers a lot. Just ask pharmaceutical companies, right? They figured it out. Absolutely, absolutely. So 
But we as Americans have to be a little bit skeptical when we see that billboard that says, number one, such and such report, you know, best heart hospital. Hmm, maybe, maybe. But is that objective or is it subjective, right? And the challenge has been back to trusting our doctors. We go to a doctor and we say, well, he says, you need an orthopedist. Well, who should I go to? And we trust him, but that doctor could be a her, right? They're making that decision not based on objective data because they don't know readmission rates, complication right. rates, never events. That They're not using objective data. So it's purely a subjective referral process. And trust me, I have seen hundreds of examples, some of which are in the, the book, Life and Death Decisions in the C-Suite, don't do that, right? Please, for the love of all things holy, if you are sick and need to see a specialist, don't go to Angie's List, Yelp, or ask your next door neighbor's best friend's cousin. It Don't do it, right? Get some objective data to make those decisions with. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's fantastic. And, and speaking of billboards and advertising, and uh, I mean, if you would like my personal opinion, which you probably don't, but everyone else probably doesn't either. You're going to get it. Is that that should be illegal? If you are a not, if your status is a not for profit, not for tax, as we like to say, um, hospital, healthcare facility, you have no business advertising. Your business is taking care of patients. Get out of that place because that money should not be spent there. I just, I feel very, very strongly about that. That's just not something that belongs. And since I'm fired up, now I'm going to get you fired up. Let's talk about those hospitals acquiring hospital systems acquiring physician practices because that's again something I don't think the average consumer understands the impact it has on them when they go to I'm in on the West Coast I'm in Washington State so our two big healthcare systems out here are Franciscan and Multicare and probably 90% of physician practices out here are owned by one of those two um hospital systems, at least where I'm located. And let me tell you what it does to access to care and access to quality. Yep, it absolutely does. You know, here's the thing. Um, healthcare is a business. The whole reason I ended up in managed care is because I had one of those, um, oh my God, moments as a bedside nurse where I instantly learned healthcare is a business and really business and healthcare, money and health, it, it, they just, they don't mix well, right? I mean, I think that those who are providing healthcare, doctors, nurses, radiation techs, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, those that are taking care of patients deserve to be compensated and to be compensated well, right? Don't get me wrong. Right. But there's a whole lot about the business of healthcare, the administration of healthcare, that is completely wrong. And please, Nancy, don't get me started on faith-based institutions. And, you know, they started out as charities and good works, and now they are very, very, very much a business. And the problem is, if you pay attention to business, every company in the world has a value right? Usually there's a valuation or a multiple and it's based on revenue or it's based yep. on profit margins or EBITDA, right? When a hospital goes into a doctor's practice and buys a practice, 
that is operating in the red and offers a double digit multiple of revenue to buy that practice that's operating in the red, that should tell you something's not adding up there, right? Now I get it. They think that they're going to go in and they're going to streamline operations and there are some efficiencies. So they won't have to have a billing department at the doctor's office anymore. All that will be handled by the mothership. And, you know, but the, the real reason they do that is they don't care if that physician's practice loses money. They're going to pressure that physician to do MRIs and CT scans and endoscopies and arthroscopic surgeries and to refer patients into the facility for all of their care and to other specialist practices that are owned by that same healthcare facility. So access to care goes down. So if you go to your primary care doctor, if you use direct primary care, DPC, for example, and you have diabetes, that very well might be handled by your DPC and might be handled very well. And he's going to talk to you about nutrition and he's going to talk to you about exercise and he's going to talk to you about medications. And he's going to go through the whole thing with you as your DPC, knowing that you, oh, by the way, also have schizophrenia, right? right? If that health system's owned, if that doctor's practice gets bought by a health system, he is pressured to send you to an endocrinologist who specializes in only diabetes. And yes, he may talk to you about diet and nutrition and exercise and medication management, but how much is he going to pay attention to those comorbid conditions, to the schizophrenia? He's not because that's not his specialty, right? He is a hammer and you are a nail. And so he's going to treat your diabetes and just your diabetes. And that's not holistic healthcare. That's not what any of us got into healthcare to do. No, we're supposed to treat the whole person because you can't just do one piece. It doesn't right. work. You have to, well, you have the whole person has to be taken into consideration. And when we're talking about whole person care, that also includes financial. Exactly. Exactly. Um, again, just a, a quick story is um, I, I need a hip replacement. I've known I needed one for a number of years and I'm stubborn and I've been putting it off as long as possible. And so I went to see um, a specialist. I actually drove about 45 minutes from where I live to go see somebody that um, came highly recommended after I'd done some research. And I went in and I saw him and he did the x-rays and the everything. And, and he sat down with me and he said, well, I'm not the kind of doctor that wants to do surgery just because you have a hip. And he said, I honestly think that we should try and extend this another couple of years based on your age, your health, everything else. Went through all the options with me. And he says, he said, because any type of joint surgery, for the most part, is an elective surgery. Right. I don't think people remember that. I need it. Well, I need it too, but I don't need it now. Probably I could get it now. And he said, unless you came in here and your leg was hanging off, then that's not elective. He said, but for most people, any type of joint surgery is an elective surgery because they're uncomfortable and they want to deal with pain. Doesn't yeah. mean it's wrong, but we have forgotten that a lot of things we do are not actually medically necessary. They might be mentally necessary, but they are not medically necessary. 
And it's, it was such an interesting conversation to have with this doctor. I, I probably sat there for an hour with him and he went through a whole bunch of options and, and uh, suggestions for me. He says, but you know what? He says, it's your body. It's up to you. You need to make the decision. And I was like, where have you been all my life? You're an amazing doctor. <laughs> Can we clone him? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's very true. You know, unless you're calling 911, you probably have time to do some informed decision-making. And that's a real challenge because I talk all the time with employers, especially, and the advisors and consultants that are helping them make decisions on their health plan about balancing the PEPY noise teeter-totter, Yep. right? You want to control costs, but you know that every time you say time out, pause, here's something else to consider, that that's running a risk of increasing noise. But it's amazing to me the number of times that patients will call about things and will ask, how long has the problem been going on? Three, four, eight, 10, 15 years. And they want a decision right now. Like, what do you mean you're asking me other questions? Well, how's it been treated so far? Why do you need to know that? My doctor said I need this, right? And so we're, we're really trying to advocate for them and help them understand all of their options and which ones are appropriate for them. I think that as we begin to see, and we're just really at the very, very beginning stages of seeing highly personalized medicine, right? It, it's enamoring people when they talk about like genetics and pharmacogenetics and making treatment decisions yep. based on genetic profiles and that kind of stuff. But what people don't realize is highly personalized medicine isn't new. Doctors used to ride around on mules with black bags and they knew everything yep. about their patient and they personalized their recommendations to what they knew. And they'd be like, well, this patient's a Jehovah's Witness, so I'm not even going to bring up blood transfusions. As exactly. Not, right. So unfortunately, most people want an instant answer. They don't want a well thought out, well researched, you know, informed answer. And that's where I was getting to with the idea of convenience in healthcare. Um, do you want it done right or do you want it done fast? Because you can't always have both, especially when it comes to healthcare. And so we see so many people who will ask them, how far would you be willing to travel to see a top-notch orthopedist, right? Maybe that doctor that, that you were talking about, would you be willing to travel an hour? Well, I'm going to have to go more than five minutes well, you would have to go more than five minutes to get to a grocery store, yeah. right? So, I mean, it's a real challenge, that American consumer mindset and having the right scripting and the right communication strategies and the right dialogue to get people thinking differently about healthcare, about being a consumer of healthcare, about autonomy, autonomy and decision-making in healthcare. Those are some real challenges. Yeah. I can see that. Well, quite frankly, we've become a society of instant gratification. So if we can't have it right now, we think we're being denied something. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite things you say, and I'm going to read it to make sure I actually say it correctly, but I love this, is you want to make sure that patients are getting the right care at the right time, at the right place. And there's the here's the thing that rounds it all out, at the right price. I love that. So how do you do that? Yeah, that's what we call P3CM. 
stands for Patient-Centric Comprehensive Care Management. It's a model of medical management that I created about 18, 19 years ago. Um, I'm so happy to see some of AIMS competitors finally adopting some of that language. I hope that they're actually delivering on it behind the scenes when they're doing it. But if you get the right patient, meaning anybody who has any health or insurance problem, question, or concern, into the right care, meaning the evidence-based best care pathway, at the right time, in the right place, meaning the highest quality, highest value provider, the secret is that 90% of the time, the natural consequence of that is the right price. Yep. Now, there's some weird stuff that goes on, like with chemotherapy and durable medical equipment and prosthetics, where we've got super hyper egregiously inflated charge masters, like they're buying the drug and marking it up 2000%. And then I don't care which insurance carrier you're using, getting a 60% discount is still not adequate in that situation, right? right? So you got to have some special pricing strategies. But the vast majority of the time, if you get the right patient, the right care at the right time in the right place, right price will be the natural consequence. And so it, it sounds simple, five simple steps, right? But the first one and the most important one is the right patient. And part of being the right patient is having the right mindset and being open and receptive. And there's a ton of work and a ton of communication that goes into getting the health plan members, the patients that become my patients, the people that work for the employer up to speed in advance of them needing a medical procedure or service from a mindset standpoint. And the biggest challenge, quite frankly, that my organization faces is that you mentioned instant gratification. I would say a a significant deterioration of the work ethic in (laughs) our society. Don't get me started. Do not get me started on that one. Right. I mean, lazy folks are not going to be able to pull this off. Yeah. I'm just telling you, it, it is a lot of work, especially from a communication standpoint, to get out to even a 100 employee life group, right? A 15 employee life group. You think it's hard when there's 5,000 employees. It's not. For big groups, this is not hard because they've already got established communication strategies and methods. They've already got a culture established yeah. within their organization. It either fits or it doesn't, right? For them, it's simple. But for those groups that are five to 5,000, there's a lot of work that goes into it because they don't have those communication channels established. They might not have their corporate culture solidified, or they might have a corporate culture where all our owner cares about is the money. And these programs, while they save a ton of money for the employer that's sponsoring the health plan on the self-funded side, that's not the focus of the program. And so employers who have that culture established, their employees think that our nurses by default are just there to save money. Right, right. And so there's a lot that goes into it. And boy, if you're even the littlest bit lazy, you're going to have a real struggle making these plans successful. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just go right off of that. So How do you think, we already have the lazy issue, but we'll pretend that, how do we get people more engaged in their own healthcare decisions? Because I think that as for the vast majority of Americans, 
have given up their own power. They walk into a place and they say, well, that's what the doctor said I needed, or that's what the nurse said I needed. And they, it's like their brains turn off the second they walk in mm -hmm. and they just like, okay, tell me what I need to do. It's okay to ask questions and nobody asks questions. Is there an alternative? What are my options? It's just, we just kind of walk in there and walk out like zombies. How do we get people more engaged? Well, I'll tell you what I think the answer is and what I have seen be successful, but I will do that with a caveat and a forewarning that it can come off as unempathetic or uncaring or mean or witchy with a B. Okay. <laughs> You have to incorporate whatever interventions you're going to be doing, whether that's um, quality of care, steerage, whether that's direct contract reminding, right? You bolt on all these cost containment solutions and you think people are going to remember them when they need them. They're not. If you want to remind people when they need them that, hey, remember we talked about this is the way you get free surgery, this is the way you get free imaging, whatever the cost containment solution might be. You have to incorporate it into the pre-cert function because we talked about that, right? Chemically, in the heat of a serious illness, your intellect is not the thing that's going to come to the forefront. When you walked into the doctor's office, the first thing they asked you to hand over as a patient is your company's unlimited gold corporate credit card. I mean, insurance ID card, right? Yeah. And they're, they're going to call the phone number on that insurance ID card and make sure that you're actually on the plan, that this procedure or service is coverable by the plan, and whether or not it requires pre-cert. If the answer to does it require pre-cert is yes, then the doctor's office or the facility will call someone like AIM and say, we want to get paid for this. How do we go about getting the authorization? incorporating all of those strategies from a patient education, from a cost containment, from a steerage standpoint into the pre-certification process is the only way that I have seen people get 100% utilization of those cost containment strategies. Now, the downside is you're putting a pause on the authorization process by incorporating into pre-cert. Yep. So you've got these providers that are used to calling the BUCAs, the Blue Cross, United Signet, Aetna, Humana, the carrier of the world, and getting a rubber stamp authorized, authorized, authorized. The codes match. They don't even sometimes ask for clinical information. No. Right? So, and now all of a sudden you're saying, time out. I need to talk to Nancy and remind her that we have a carve-out imaging contract. And if she goes to the independent imaging facility instead of across the hall, it would be free to her. And the doctor's office is going to go, what? I've never heard of you. What do you mean you have to talk to the patient? You're not going to give me the authorization? No, I have to talk to the patient. So then they go back to the patient with their version of the horror story. I've never heard of anything like this. And I, this insurance must be horrible and blah, 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 blah. And so they plant a seed of doubt or a seed of discontent into the patient's mind. And I'm sure that it's not malicious, but it has a negative consequence because then when the patient calls us, they're not coming into that call with an right. open, receptive mindset. Now, fortunately, because we use Prochesca method and motivational interviewing and Carnegie techniques and all those strategies, we're able to turn that around 
And by the end of the call, Nancy's like, oh, thank God, I would have had to pay my $5,000 deductible and I'm getting this for free instead. Right. But Sign me it, up. yeah, right. It makes every one of those conversations more difficult and more disruptive. And nine times out of 10, when the doctor's office tells Nancy that she has to call the insurance, Nancy doesn't walk out and call the insurance. Nancy walks into HR throwing a fit that she has to call the insurance. So, And then HR calls the broker throwing a fit. And then the broker calls us and then we're yeah. like, we just want to tell her she could get it for free if she did, you know. So that's why you have to address mindset in advance of that procedure or service being needed. If you just bolt things on as a voluntary opt-in, you will get some utilization and it will have some impact. But if you want 100% utilization or as close to it as is humanly possible, I always tell people, if you truly love your employees, you have to understand it's tough to love. There's an element of tough love involved in avoiding people being butchered, maimed, and killed by bad health care. Yeah. Right. And so that, from an employer standpoint, is the mindset that has to change. When we talk about robotic procedures that have twice the risk of death as that same procedure performed in a traditional laparoscopic approach. And then I have company owners calling the broker and I'm getting on a conference call to explain why somebody's 30-year executive assistant is sobbing hysterically because the robotic portion of their surgery got denied. And I say, we love her too much to put her at double the risk of death, right? To me, that's like, oh, okay. But there's so much emotion that sometimes if the employer hasn't been prepped with that in advance, they're like, no, 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 she needs this right now, you know. Okay, right. But again, a logic and emotion seldom cross paths, and especially in healthcare. So we have to do a better job incorporating it into pre-cert makes it work. The trade-off is that it can feel bad. Right. Yeah. Do we logically want it to work or do we want it to feel good? Because feel good costs eh, somewhere between thirteen and eighteen thousand dollars per employee per year in medical and pharmacy claims combined. Doing it on a traditional PPO incentivized, doing what I'm talking about, performs at about four thousand dollars per employee per year. Doing it on top of reference based pricing performs between two and three thousand dollars per employee per year. So if you're a business owner, think about that. If you're spending $13,000 per employee per year now, you should only be spending $4,000 per employee per year. Is the emotion, is the feel-good effect worth a 3x expenditure? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, that's excellent um, explanation. And I also think before I pop into the next section, I think personally for me, that's why the medical management apps don't work very well because it's already hard and they need somebody to hold their hand. They need somebody to mentally walk them through that journey so that they can feel better about 
the decision they've made and they know, okay, now I've got all this information. I understand why this recommendation was made. I understand why I'm going to drive 45 minutes to go to this top rated surgeon and end up paying, paying $0 out of pocket. An app can't do that for you. No disrespect yeah. to the apps out there. I'm just saying, I don't think that that's, I don't think it addresses the entire problem. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think that an app alone can't do it. Now, I do think right. there's a role for apps. Me right? too. I, yeah, I'm not saying, like I say, no disrespect. It's just, it right. doesn't solve the entire problem. It doesn't. And, and I think the challenge right now, I'll tell you, I'm investing in building an app, right? As you should. But the if you look at your health plan expenditure, and you look at the average age of the person who's in the top 20% of your expenditures, it's going to be age 40 plus, right? It's us. Yeah. And we're the ones that are costing money. Yep. In 10 years, when the people who are 20 and 30 years old start to fall apart, that app's going to have to be there. Absolutely. Right? Because they're not going to pick up the phone and have a verbal conversation. That's so, where they want to start. Right. They want to start with the app and that may lead them to the verbal conversation, but that's where they want to start because that's what feels safest to them. Yep. And so the app alone won't do it. And, and verbal alone isn't ideal, right? right. I, I mean, we've been verbal alone for a very long time and we've been slowly adopting more and more and more patient facing tech to, to make that um, a broader spectrum of services. But there has to be a point at which a human being can talk to a human being. Healthcare is human. Yeah. And so that interaction is really critical. And one of the challenges is a lot of the apps, a lot of them that I vet are phenomenal apps, but they don't want to integrate from a system standpoint. They don't want to ping a live nurse when Nancy goes on and says, I need help finding an oncologist to the app. That deserves a human interaction for follow-up, Absolutely. right? And so if they won't integrate and they won't share data, they won't ping the nurses, they won't put the human element into play, it's going to be a real uphill battle for an app alone to solve the challenge. Yeah. Well, I warned everyone when we started this, I was going to have a hard time staying focused because she obviously she, Neb is just so interesting to talk to. And, and we have so much that we can go on about. But I'm going to shift gears for a second because you and I have something else in common and we both work with family. So personally, my son, my daughter-in-law and my nephew all work here. And I know that your son and potentially daughter-in-law work for you as well. I'm not sure. I know there was another alt in there, but I'd love to hear about that experience and what's been the best part. And then it's been the most challenging part. Yeah, working with family is great and is terrifying all at the same time. Um, I will tell you, I remind my husband daily that this company is all his fault. Um, he is technically the originator of Alt International Medical Management. He's our chief operating officer. Um, we were very fortunate, he and I, to be recognized as one of the top duos in healthcare um, by Healthcare Insights Magazine. We have our own cover shot and all that kind so of fun cute. stuff. Um, so he and I have been in this from the very beginning. Um, my son joined our company in second grade when he was sweeping floors and stuffing envelopes and making copies and, you know, learning the business literally from the ground up. He's now our chief financial officer. You guys may have seen him speak. He also wrote a chapter in Life and Death Decisions. Um, it's really uh, fun to see him coming into his own. 
And then I was scared to death because my daughter-in-law approached me maybe four or five years ago now and said, hey, you know that executive um, executive assistant position that you have open? I want that job. Now, I had gone through 13 executive assistants leading up to her saying she wanted the job. And so I was a bit terrified that um, I, I would either end up estranged from my son and his family or that he would end up divorced. And so, but she said, no, 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 no. I know the, I know you, I know how you operate. I know why you're doing this. I want in. And so she joined our company and now my granddaughter comes in. We have an in-office daycare. So I get to see her every day and granddaughter number two is on the way. So the benefits of working with family certainly far exceed the negatives of working with family. But if you decide to do it, just be aware family dinners and Christmas and Easter work is going to come up. <laughs> it does, even though you say, oh, we're not going to talk about work. And the next thing you know, you're talking about work. So it does. Um, it does. I, I agree with you that the benefits have, have been the same for me. Um, I think well, Nick was coming into my office when he was in elementary school and doing his homework in the back office. And then he would work, you know, he would enter policies into our system and do different things. So it's been it's been a good experience for me, too. It is challenging and you do need to you do need to, for the most part, leave the family part aside when you walk in the doors and operate as co-workers. So. OK, so. One last question before we move it on to the fun stuff, because I want to be sure and touch on this, is you've contributed to several books. We saw Life and Death Decisions um, on this on these problems, as well as potential solutions to both the healthcare delivery and healthcare payment system. Just a reminder to everyone, those two are two different things. Um, so what was your biggest takeaway from the experience of, of authoring a chapter or contributing to a book? Oh, man, boy, writing is tough, right? I, I love to do it, but um, I tend to go down a bunch of rabbit holes and what should be a chapter ends up being a book. And um, so it, it's writing is, is a challenge. Um, God bless those people who think that it's easy to do. I'm certainly not one of them. Um, one of the other books that I wanted to mention is um, the one that Dr. Josh Luke started on the provider side. Um, so the readmission penalty um, project, it's interesting to me that a lot of people think that medical management is anti-provider and nothing could be further from the truth. Here at AIM, we have an entire book of business that is healthcare providers, hospitals, and health systems. So um, there are many, many, many out there that are doing everything humanly possible to do it right and be a part of the solution. And so as, as I'm writing, I always try to keep that in mind. Um, there are no evil ogres in the story, right? As we are doing the hero's journey and, and modeling writing after the hero's journey, it's the, the villain is nobody and everybody all at the same time. And so writing to me and trying to keep that in mind, it's, it's a challenge, but I think it's necessary. And I would encourage more people, if you're a part of this disruptor, next gen, health Rosetta, Q4i kind of movement, free market medical association, there are several of them. I'm Nahu, I'm glad to see finally taking some real steps forward um, to be part of this movement. Even if it's just a post on LinkedIn, Facebook, if it's a TikTok, if it's an Instagram, 
if it's um, getting up and introducing yourself at the local chamber of commerce, Rotary Club, you've got to do it. No matter how hard it is, you've got to step up to the plate and do it. You've got to write, you've got to post, you've got, because we need Americans to know the solution already exists. We don't have to go to nationalized health care, right? Um, I think my friend Nelson Griswold says it best when he talks about it, having the compassion of the IRS and the timeliness of the DMV. We don't want that. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. So, so um, I, I would just challenge everybody who's here, share your stories, share your successes, share your challenges. Don't try and live in isolation, even though it's difficult get out there and do it because we need America to know the solution exists and they are the solution. Absolutely. Okay. So we get to have some fun questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Number one, everybody gets this question. When I eventually do a book, I anticipate, I envision that at the end of every chapter, there's going to be a recipe attached. So that's why I always like to ask yes. this question. So what is your absolute favorite food in the world and can you cook it? Oh, my absolute favorite food in the world is yellow birthday cake with white buttercream icing and red roses. Um, <laughs> I was not expecting that. That's my absolute favorite food in the I world. Love it. Um, uh, technically, I can cook it. I took the entire Joanne Fabrics Wilton cake decorating course to learn how to do it. I have not done it in forever, but technically, I'm capable, but I probably would never cook it. Okay. I'm not a good uh, cook to start with, Nancy. Just so you know, I can cook like five things. Five I'm things. not a good cook. <laughs> okay. Well, the yellow cake, though, I love that answer. Um, so what's one character trait that you most admire in other people and why? Oh, I would have to say the, the character trait that I most admire in other people is um, openness right? Being willing to share their story, even though it might be painful or might not paint them in the best light. Um, I, I love seeing all the good stuff on Facebook. Don't get me wrong. But when people are able to say, you know, I really flubbed this up. <laughs> and if you can learn from my mistake, I'm happy to share it. That's one of the things I probably most admire in people. I like that. Okay, so if I turn the mirror on you and I say, what's the character trait you're most proud of in yourself and why? Um, I'd have to say it's probably perseverance, right? We're getting ready to go on year 20 here as an independent medical management firm. Um, there are just times that I just refuse to give up. And there are times when there's a lot of pressure when you're doing something very entrepreneurial and creative and innovative and new, um, there are lots of people who are willing to tell you why that's wrong and why you shouldn't do it. But when you know in your gut, it's the right thing to do and I'm going to do it anyway and I'm going to keep doing it <laughs> because it's the right thing to do. That's kind of me. When, when I get that, um, passion for something or that great idea. And people say, nobody can do that. It'll never work. That's right up my alley. Game right? on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So um, if you could encourage people to do just one thing to improve, 
to take better control of their healthcare experience, what would it be? Hmm, that's a hard one, right? Because I want to go to the very basic stuff like get enough sleep, which none of us in this industry do. Um, I would have to say have an ally that is unbiased, intellectual, unemotional to help you through the decisions that you have to make. Have a sounding board now, that might be your direct primary care doctor. That might be an independent medical management nurse like somebody at our company. That might be a next door neighbor. It might be an independent patient advocate, right? We were um, one of the founding members of the Professional Patient Advocate Institute. Um, so you can hire independent patient advocates, but have somebody to help you with your healthcare decision making. Don't try and go it alone. And don't have it be your spouse, your child, your parent, yeah. your sister, somebody who's emotionally involved. Have it be an objective outsider. The more serious your health issues are, the more desperately you need that, that person. Okay. I love that. That's a great, um, great suggestion. All right. So here's a fun one. What's your secret talent or something people would be surprised to learn about you? Oh, well, hmm. Um, I don't know if a whole lot of people know that my downtime or my relaxation time is to crochet. So I make scarves and hats and blankets and, you know, tend to donate those and, you know, give them away to other entities. I love to do that. It's very relaxing to me. Um, my other, though, um, less enamoring a secret talent is I can throw up about any time, anywhere. I get motion sick if I walk around a corner too fast. <laughs> So I don't know how many people know that, but, you know. Okay. Yeah, you're not riding in the car with me. So I got that down. Right. You um, do not want to be in the back of an Uber with me. That's yeah, all I'm saying. I got it. Um, okay. Last question. So who is the one person famous or otherwise that you would most like to meet in real person and at real person in real life and sit down and have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or definitely not riding a car with, but you know what I'm, where I'm right. going with that. Yeah. Um, that's a tough one. And I'm going to, Nancy let me cheat. And she told me she was going to ask me this question beforehand. And I'm glad she did because there are so many answers that I would give. Um, I, first and foremost, I would say number one, Jesus Christ, but I'm pretty fortunate that I know I'm going to meet him eventually. So I'll cross him off the list. Um, if you know Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jamie Diamond, and you want to connect me up to have a conversation with them, I would be more than happy to do that. Um, I think they have a real opportunity to change healthcare in America that they're maybe not taking advantage of. Mark Cuban is another guy I would really love to meet um, live and in person. But um, just on a personal basis, like I would love to meet Yo-Yo Ma. Right. And, and to just talk to him about his music and his dedication and his, you know, how do you get that good? I know it's crazy. Isn't it crazy? It but really yeah, from a business standpoint, hook me up with any of those other folks. You know, I'd be happy to talk to them. But um, there, there are so many truly unique and intriguing people in our world. It's true. It's amazing. Hard to pick just one for sure. Well, thank you so much. Um, I so much appreciated your time. Um, I know a lot of people 
Um, we're engaged, we're participating and leaving comments. If anybody wants to learn more about um, Alt International Medical Management, um, you can connect with Deb online. Your website is aim-m.com. Did I get that right? That's right. I did get yeah. it right. Um, and if for some reason you forget all of that, please feel free to reach out to me and I will gladly make the connection. This was um, probably one of my top three podcasts we've had to date. It was so much fun. And thank you so much for coming on, Deb. I so much appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me, Nancy. It was a lot of fun. And if I can help anyone out there, I'm always happy to do it. Thank you. And everybody have a great day.